Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 430. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 430 you're listening to. My guest today is Liverpool-based producer, studio owner, and composer Stephen Cole, who runs a lovely studio called What Studio, and he's worked with groups such as X Easter Island Head, Bonacons of Doom, and Lone Saw. We have a fantastic conversation that I think you'll find enjoyable, and I'm looking forward to having Stephen on. So, Stephen Cole, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about checking your work. You've heard me talk endlessly about habits. You know, I always talk about the Atomic Habits book, right? One habit that we should all have is checking our work. Now, I know that that is a complete no-brainer to most of you out there listening. Most of you are like, yeah, no shit, right? But you would be surprised. There are a large number of people, and it's not just newbie engineers, it's pro engineers that are not checking their work. You may have heard me talk about the Atmos album that appeared on Apple Music. Not gonna name the artist or the engineer. However, a record that you would think had a number of people listening and proofing and QCing appeared on Apple Music with Simpty Time Code streaming out of the center channel. How does that happen, one might ask? How is it that you can get a piece of music out there and have somebody completely miss that? whether in headphones or speakers. I mean, it was plain as day. So it's shocking to me that that could even happen, but it does. Here's an example for you in the outer world, the outer world, that's what I'm calling the world outside of audio, the outer world. In my area, we have an organization that, you know, raises money for the schools. And (laughs) they sent out these magnets and misspelled schools. And I thought, how the hell does that happen? How the hell do you have a number of people sign off on something, look at it and and just, yeah, that looks great. Yeah, misspelling schools when you're trying to raise money for schools. I mean, if if that is a, uh, if that's an advertisement for the reason we need to raise money for schools, yeah, that, that kind of worked. But it was an embarrassment, you know? They spent all this money on magnets and they misspelled the name schools. Unbelievable. Same thing in music, you know? You put all that money and effort in and then some, you let something slip by like that. In the world of streaming, it's not, it's, it's more of an embarrassment and less of a catastrophe financially. Because look, in the days of CDs and vinyl, well, of course we are still doing CDs and vinyl, some people are out there. The stakes are not as high, I guess, because that track that I mentioned with the Simpty time code, they just did a takedown. Redid it, put it back up correctly, right? Easy fix. Shouldn't have to happen that way. Shouldn't be embarrassing like that for the artist. But that's what they did. Now, if you're pressing thousands of CDs or loads of vinyl, that's a mistake that's hard to recover from because now it is permanently etched in a physical media. And that's a problem. So look, we're in this stage of technology with audio stuff where we can do offline bounces 
And I know the, the, the deadlines can, you know, really creep up and catch you by surprise and you're just trying to get the shit out the door, right? But take a moment, take a deep breath and take the time in real time to put on a pair of headphones and listen through what you're about to send to somebody. If you send something that's got a colossal mistake, that's not exactly a good impression, right? If you're on the other end of that and you hear that, you might think, well, how the hell did that creep through? Clearly they're not listening. And if they're not listening to this, what else did they miss? And it could be a number of things. It could be clicks and pops, which you know most of you mastering engineers out there know that you gotta QC your work. You gotta put on the headphones. You gotta, whether it's you or, or an assistant, somebody's gotta listen and catch this shit, right? But it could be something as simple as sending them a mono mix, right? When it's supposed to be a stereo mix. I'm sure that's happened to a number of us. Now, obviously it's a different story if you're sending a mix for something that you've been given and you, the comment comes back, where's the tambourine? What, what tambourine, right? There's that whole factor where, you know, you don't get the tracks that they expected to be there. But once again, that's a situation where you should be checking the rough mix and doing a, a you know, an inventory of the parts if you're mixing and go, oh, we're missing the tambourine. Rather than just mixing it, not listening to the rough mix and telling them you listen to the rough mix and then the tambourine's not there, right? All these situations can crop up. There's a, a, a endless variety of problems that can occur. But problems can be addressed when you sit down and you listen in real time, not offline bounces, in real time. And fine, if you want to do an offline bounce, great. But before you send it, listen to it. Because in some situations, that may be your only chance to make a good impression. And if somebody hears a colossal mistake, you may get fired on the spot. You never know. On the indie level, you know, it's, it's not that intense. Obviously, as you go into the major label level, it's intense. Now, that's just talking about music. Film, video games, oh man, that's a whole nother ball of wax, right? All you post-production people, I'm sure you could tell us some horror stories. So, check your shit, label it, do your due diligence. Make sure all the I's are dotted, T's are crossed. Do what is right for the client. Because when they hear it and they love it, even if they have a couple changes, as long as it's right, and it's and some of those decisions are subjective, you know, like, oh, I think the crash symbols are too loud, whatever, that's subjective. But as long as they're in there and you've checked it all and it's got the full inventory of what should be there, and there's no clicks and there's no pops and there's no errors, you're probably pretty good. So that's that, I know. It's, it's like such a common sense thing, but has to be said. So, like I say, check your shit. All right, friends, that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Stephen Cole here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me, Matt. Great to have you here. You are talking to us from Liverpool, which I was there last summer as we were discussing before we started rolling. Are you originally from Liverpool? I am originally from Liverpool. I am still in Liverpool. I'll probably stay in Liverpool, the way it seems to be panning out. <laughs> I'm from a sunny little fishing village called Bootle. I don't know if you're familiar. Bootle. I'm not familiar with that. It's like a, a rough urban Docklands area, I guess. It's nice. Check it out. Tell me about your, your upbringing and how it relates to either music or technology and or recording. I've obviously considered this somewhat, and I think it's something to do, I think I'm a product of that home recording boom that happened. Mm -hmm. I think if we could like call it that, I had a tape four track. It was a Q-Tech MR402, which I've Googled since, and there's not many of them around. I don't know what that was. It was a strange brown thing it was. And I got that when I was about 14, something like that. And I played in bands before that. I'd done sound on sound from one karaoke machine to another. You know, I'd got the bug of playing with audio and I'd been a Spectrum computer owner as well. So I'd got into data cassette, speeding up tapes and bugging phones and things. I'd always had some kind of penchant for messing with that type of thing. So tell me data cassettes, like 
Um, so this was like your, your Spectrum. You used to have to load in your games via... Yeah, yeah. So really early on, I realised it had inputs and outputs, and I realised I could do something by attaching that to the phone. So I used to do, you know, crank calls on phones and things like that. <laughs> so like I'd always been fiddling with tape or recording it or something before I'd even got into music, I think. Mm. And I remember uh, first music that like really got me, I guess, was things like Five Star, because that was good. Do you know Five Star? No, tell me. They're one of those bands where like all the family are songwriters and, and the whole band like in the family or something. I think they were like our Jacksons or something like that. And it was it was like 80s DX7s and things like that. So I got into that very early on, super early on. Madness was next, I oh, remember yeah. that. And then the thing I remember most is I had a sister into Strange Music, but it was like 80s things, so that didn't quite attract me at the time. Love it now. But I had a cousin into like guitar-based heavy things, and I thought that was silly and funny, and, and it didn't attract me at all. But he played me, so this must be 86, 87, so I'm like eight or nine or something. And he played me Rain and Blood by Slayer. And, <laughs> and, 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 and he's obviously trying to go, check this out. And I was absolutely like enamored by the intro because it, I'd never heard Rain recorded because it's like this spooky intro that goes on for like a minute of thunder and rain. And I was more like, what is that? I was like, can you, how, what? I just couldn't, the perception of knowing you could record normal things as well as there being some music with it. That, I remember being like, that is incredible. And then I thought the music was like infinitely more interesting straight after that. Mm -hmm. So obviously it's just my ears becoming like aware. So I'd always been like kind of interested in that. So the natural progression of tape, demos and recording bands and all the usual things followed and the lineage of, Ataris and power PCs and out of time sync MIDI things. And <laughs> one of my main staples, and actually on reflection, is I had a friend who used to work in a recycling plant. And every single week we'd go to visit his house and he'd give me the recycled magazines from last month. And this was all like WH Smith, which is our, one of our main distributors here. Yeah. So it was, it was Sound on Sound, Paul White, etc. It was, oh. It was Future Music. And it was every like music magazine available and tech and fishing and naughty magazines. This was like the gold mine as, as a teenager. He also, you'd collect stubby beers from as well. So on a Friday, you get your beers. You'd get this bizarre literature of every hobby you had in mind. Uh -huh. And we kind of walk home with armfuls of things. And, I, you know, it'd take me forever to get through this. But it was all the sample CDs as well. So I had a stack of samples before I even had a CD player. Wow. It was like an absolute, on hindsight, it's like, that was the resource. That's what got me going. Because I'd read everything about stuff. I had no idea what it was before I even knew what the words were. <laughs> That's great. amazing to have access to all that. But not just recording, but like fishing and, you know. Like everything, everything. So I dabbled in quite a lot of light reading, if you understand. So because yeah. uh, it was just, it was quite a, an archive of what should I do next? Yeah. But also computer magazines. So my program was coming up and it was great. I only just thought that now. That might have been it. It's that. Yeah. That, what an <laughs> education too. I love sound on sound. Oh. I still read sound on sound. Yeah. I mean, if you're going anywhere, you do pick up a copy of sound on sound on the way and just go, yes. Even if it's like nine quid, <laughs> whatever, that'll do. <laughs> yeah. Sound on Sound, such a great magazine. Absolutely, yeah. How old were you when that was happening? So I, I was in high school and I was picking it up on the way home. So it was like 11 or 12, definitely. I was very young. Like, 
I was going out to clubs and things when I was about 12 and 13, so I was trying my darn best to be a grown up as quick as possible as well. And recording bands and as I say, I got my four track when I was 14 and it was like, that was that. I felt like I could do it anything. And I was borrowing on hindsight as well. There was a lot of local musicians and they'd lend me strange things like a dramatic sequential drum machine. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't know how to do anything. I was just using it all manual initially, obviously, because I didn't know how to, I didn't even know what MIDI was. Yeah. I love that that's kind of the, uh, the early inspiration for what you did. Your first four track is that something you bought with your own money or did your did your family buy that for you? The cousin I had who was into music had it, had it for about a week, didn't seem to be using the thing, and then he passed on his problem of purchasing it to me, I guess, or whatever. But I was like, oh, can I get that? So I think I was like Christmas money and saved up things and all that type of stuff. Mm. What did you create with that? Absolute nonsense, which, by the way, obviously I archived it Obviously, I've used it. Obviously, then I travel through onto like mini disc, and it's traveled through now. I've got it on WAVs, and I still use it as source material because it's mind bending. It's just really strange. It's all warbly. It's all great source material for things. So it always pops up in records. I've just used it the other day. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. And it's got, got so much history as well. Every time you dip into a sample bank like that, you feel like it's got so much more weight to it because of you know exactly why it works. And it's from something I was on the floor playing with when I was 15 or something. So that's always a treat as well. And so you moved on to mini disc. Were those mini disc like four tracks? or, or- Absolutely. So an f- absolute breakthrough of mine. And I don't know if you recall this. Did did you use one of those systems? No, no, I never had a multi-track mini disc. The heights of my four-track, eight-track stuff ended with the eight-track cassette that you could get from Tascam, and then I I was on to multi-track, you know, pro-level stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this was the jump from a no tapers, b like releasable. If you get it right, it could be used. It was clean. Very strange compression rates. But the key thing, and this was what actually informed probably my own act that I write for and maybe the way that music was going. So this would be now 98, 7, mm. 6, somewhere around there. It had a configurable playlist with markers of A to Z. So you could say, leave a marker from A to B, and then you could say, could you play A to B eight times? And it would. And because of this being a four track, you could have four tracks of something cycling around on a designated playlist, A to B, eight times, section B, four, section A, and you could basically chop and edit digitally inside the machine super fast. And this kind of informed like accidents to be happening in the same loop as a drum that you may not have decided to do initially and grooves from nowhere that you may never have written, etc. So it was a real opportunity to work in that way without getting near a computer and all the time i was going oh i need a computer i really could do with a computer now because i was aware of things getting a bit more stable that end as well but that was a big breakthrough for me i had no idea you could do that oh it was it was fantastic absolutely the bees knees and you could do that and then master to another mini disc at the time as well we were mastering to things like svhs but it really informed me because it started basically we were all in bands i say we because i was living in a group house where there was lots of people and lots of musicians visiting and all the usual type of thing you know what musicians are like oh yeah yeah they gravitate to something and there was lots of different bands lots of us were in similar bands together in this group of people and i started to just record more things of like more about who was in the room it wasn't like there's a band it was like i'm doing some recording with this strange technique so you could get someone to just hit 
some percussion and then loop it and they're like, oh, they're in the song. So it became a bit like you could really access anyone to play music, I realised. So I was getting on that trip, really. So this kind of became one song that was really good compared to maybe struggling in the bands and going, oh, that's just... I was getting bored with normal rock music or whatever. My tastes were changing and all these kind of things. And I just remember noticing that we had like a C90 ferric tape filled of this nonsense. And then like, this is the thing that we've been listening to the most as musicians and artists between us all. And we're kind of getting really... Ex so that happened for like years. And then, so that started get around 97, 98. And then about 2002, we actually became an act because we released a record. It was an EP actually. And that act was called APAT. And that is kind of like probably the the pickup of what I've been doing since with my own practice. And also it's been like the thread and the source of like most of my learning as well, if not the catalyst. Yeah. How would you describe it? Like musically, what would you describe it as? The only elevator pitch that everybody's meant to have. I really, really haven't got one. And mm. the act's been going for about 21, 20 ish years or something now, is it? Something 22, 20 years. And I still can't really. And I'm glad about that. I'm really fucking made up actually. <laughs> Because it's changed, you know, and, and my tastes have changed. And, and like, if you listen to the first EP compared to the last thing, you can see a development. And I think that that's fine to happen as well. But when we started it, we, we described ourselves as, wait for it. It was something on a poster that said, like, ambient noise core. I don't know what that. <laughs> what, what, what's that? Ambient I think that's because we hadn't written any bits yet, I guess. And then we got into more writing bits and then we became a bit like that. So... Words like experimental and stuff seem to stop getting used a lot now. And I just call it pop now. Yeah. In the sense of that people can scroll around on a shuffle playlist and listen to anything. You're allowed to do that now as a musician, I think. But it just it's just not if you're in a band or something. I don't know. I know there's more ambient artists than Brian Eno, but was Brian Eno an influence? Brian Eno is an influence. I'd say he's more conceptually than audibly. Um, yeah. And we don't really like do a lot of ambient things anymore, but it was just a way to start. I, I always say this, there's some starter musics, isn't there? You start on some things and like you can just kind of get going and it just, it doesn't, it's not a conflict for a few people to just play that type of thing. Jamming, if you will. And I think that's kind of what most things start with and then in come the ideas and then maybe some musical differences get in the way or something like that. Um, that's the journey. And that's the journey of bands. So did you consider yourself more musician or recording engineer or both or experimental recording engineer? Like at that time, what would you consider yourself? I think I can only say, I don't know if I did at the time, because as the act, we were trying to break a lot of this normal, this kind of this most pretentious, we were like 20 and the most pretentious you could be about like, well, let's not be like bands. Hey, let hey band, let's not be like a band. So, you know, we won't have like a leader. We'll all swap instruments. Everyone dresses the same. We all have pseudonyms. So you don't even know who anyone is. There'll be some fake names. There'll be some real names. There'll be. So it was all about like subverting the expectations of the band thing. So, ah, where yeah. does that leave you? You know, so like, um, so I, I don't, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> Did you have exposure to proper studios at any point? 
my first experience of proper studios was probably around about 96, 97. And I managed, and this was a real catalyst again. I went and did a demo with my functioning. I was in another early, very like heavy bands, which is very technical. And it had wiggly fast bits and drum machines and real drummers all in polyrhythms and stupid samples firing and all this kind of stuff. And my first experience of going to the studio was that I didn't come out happy. I was just so upset by seeing... I now understand they were just like sweeping frequencies or looking for correct thresholds. I now understand what they were doing, but it drove me mad because I'd hear them change it and I'd think, what, 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 what was that? And I'd just hear a new Sonic and then it'd go to wherever it was. And I'd be like, no, 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 that bit then was great. What was that? And I, f I just, <laughs> I came out of it so frustrated because it was like, there was so many things. And also we had like drum machines, which were midied up and to an Akai uh, S1000. And it was the first time I had access to an S1000 yeah. to get the things in. And he just gave us some like stock samples. And even though I had that much information in my brain to know that could happen, I didn't realize he could just give me a different audio sample. And he just gave me these stock things and I was really frustrated with the tones he gave. Anyway, the whole procedure just left me a little cold because I was like, I think I need to know everything about what was going on then. I, I won't be able to construct anything correctly if I don't know what they were doing. It just seemed like I must learn that. I can't have someone else do that. That's just, it just made me nauseous. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't think I ever went back to one as a, a punter ever again. And yeah. then I started like training-ish, say around about... 2002 it must have been around about then and then I started, you know i just did the usual thing when they did like a hnd and music tech locally which was reasonably bare access meanwhile we have a reasonably prestigious place called lipper in liverpool which i being a local lad can't get in or wouldn't get in back in the day but what they do is they have programs of bringing bands in so i've kind of lived in their studio since i was a kid on the night shifts and they've got like they've always had good gear so i've kind of like quivered around other people's mic lockers my whole life <laughs> <laughs> so i've always had access to the real things and played on them but it wasn't really my musical tastes didn't desire it and i must stress this as well even though i now run a studio that was never an aim of mine it was always the inquiry of i was experimenting you know i really was experimenting and, and trying to find what i think sounds nice basically and what is good and what is clean and how do i get it to how can i do that because I, I believe in self-sufficiency quite a lot in when you're being creative, because otherwise you're dependent on some other situation, and that seems really limiting to your creativity. So I've always wanted to be able to do it myself from the very beginning. So did you ever do like a proper internship or end up working in studios that other people owned? Nope. I ran a community studio for 13 years prior where I work now, and I would say that that was probably my working with the public thing. Wow. 13 years. Tell me about that. I think it was 13 years. It was a very active community studio for maybe five or six, seven years. And then it was kind of winding down after that. And that's just to do with funding and cutbacks and, and changing the delivery of arts was in, in the country. But initially I signed up to be able to do a very, very music focused community thing. So like a lot of my background of doing that, it was quite amusing. The minute I opened my studio, my own private studio, as it were, I thought, that's the end of that community access kind of stuff. It'll be a little bit more like, let's just get this done. And it turns out it's not. It's exactly the same. Everyone in every band has got some member who's not up to speed, someone else who's got the clipboards, and someone else who's got a music degree. And there's always a mixed variety of people. And 
it's a funny thing. When I was in the community mind, I didn't worry so much about audio. It was people, lots just working with people, getting the best out of them and making them leave transformed. Mm, yeah. You know, they've got an idea, whatever it is, and you go, well, actually, you can do this, and actually, do you want a drum, real drums on it? Or, or you can turn something from being a kernel of an idea into a finished thing. And and if they desire a string thing, you can get some string. And they're just like, this isn't... And I love that transformation. And similarly, when I opened the own, my own studio... I'm so focused on audio, like the first like six months or whatever, but it turns out it's just still about people and trying to see who's in the rooms, not getting the attention they, they should be getting, trying to make sure that everyone's being heard when they've got an idea hmm. or, I mean, what in my facility as well, it's kind of a one room facility. It's not a multi-room dimension thing. It's like one big thing. And I'm at the back in this kind of strange hut, which just about gives me enough protection from the drummer. As things are happening, if I can see an eyebrow quirk or looking like, I just know, and I can respond to that. So that's still about people. It's all getting the best out of that. We all know it's best to get it right at source. So I think people being comfortable and responded to is is it. So I've, I did a lot of that prior opening this. So I've, that, that type of stuff is second nature to me, really. The community studio, how, how would that be run? Like, what's the structure of that? It's a lot more laissez-faire to like how you, you know, so people don't book in and then turn up on time, for instance, so that you won't be getting any of that. There might not be all the members there. No one's rehearsed, maybe. So it's just like a normal studio. (laughs) 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 Little joke there. Yeah, all the usual problems, but they're often like a little bit more extreme in one way or another. And often, so say instead of maybe like three members being good and one being a little bit behind it you might be like two of them are good and two are a little bit behind the ratios are just different of keen people but as i say like the transformation from a job satisfaction point of view the transformation is bigger so i enjoy that as much as anything you know like if, if you can turn someone's simple acoustic idea into the thing they've always wanted to hear it as a band performance with them on every instrument or something and you do it that you know that's cool so the word community am i wrong in saying that that would indicate to me like a low cost or free situation for bands? So that particular one, as I say, was funded. We've got a thing called the National Lottery in England. And at the time it was funded by something like £450,000 worth of lottery money. So bills were paid for, studio equipment was paid for, renovation was paid for. The building's still there, actually. It's based in Witness. Big shout out to the studio. And I think it's quite unique, that facility. I have to point that out. I don't think there's many of those type of things running in England, and certainly not at the moment, and they certainly won't be running as a studio paid for. But as an initiative, that was a private initiative which became a charity which put together something like 14 different revenue feeds. So it is a unique situation. I have to point that out. Mm. It sounds unique. Yeah. And I was really lucky to, to do that as well because, it's, as I say, the peace of mind of... I was learning how to do it on my own terms as well in many ways because I didn't have the pressure of, what about the kick drum sound? And all that. Yeah. I mean, and what a great training ground to really get your people skills dialed in. It's literally that. You've got to kind of be able to like attach yourself to every single member of the act, especially if it's a live thing or especially if you're working with them in long term, maybe an album project. You know, an album project is a very, if someone goes down track four, you've got them in a weird mood. It's not going to be a good session for anyone. So, it's that really keep the mood up eh? <laughs> yeah yeah the mixture of ages what was that like 
I don't mind that really because you get, again it opens up different music so you get like some of the most of the young kids would be doing indie rock a couple of weird metal things and then there was a lot of like folk things I suppose and a lo- whole lot of whole lot of that kind of thing going on yeah and as I say it's about people making sure they leave happy that's what I got from that if I focused too much on sounds when I was there they're not interested but if you can play them something that they like the sound of at the end that's job done isn't it I mean I've, I've carried that work on through when we did the shutdown thing I carried that on and I went Works with a lot of people online doing that as well and, and doing an awful lot of, you know, the listen to software. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, once that came out, it was like two weeks after we shut down or something. Like, it was it couldn't have been so well-timed. I was able to, A, keep working doing that. I managed to get some funding from the youth music and I worked with a bunch of kids writing songs and stuff online. And I'm going to quote you on this because I've heard you saying about, like, diversification. Yeah. It's like, boy, did we have to do that on that, on that particular couple of years. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of whatever I've learned with any of that, it gets carried through to everything of a group work style, really. And it's super important. And, you know, you're never going to get that without doing it. <laughs> no one's going to be able to teach you that. Let me ask you something, because I only use the audio movers software really to transmit what I'm doing. Say, if I'm doing a mix mm. for somebody and then I need them to do yeah. mix revisions with me online, that's how I use it. But I'm told, and maybe you know better than I do, that you can actually have two-way audio. Is that correct? Fully correct. And you can also do it with like multi-channel now as well. But I think you have to, it's got a twin level account now, you know, a two-tier thing. Although I've not done that because that would scare the pants out of me. Yeah. <laughs> but, I'm, but it must be fine. It must be fine. Just on a simple level, could you have somebody doing a vocal from their bedroom and recording mm-hmm. it into, wow. Yeah. Oh, I love that idea. It's worth setting up just to have a little try of, isn't it, really? See what that does. But I, I couldn't have lived without that plugin for the last few months. It's been a saviour. I've kind of been using it with just running like a WhatsApp video at the same time on my phone and then running that there for the real audio. And then I can just do the takes in front of them. If Because I was doing things like playing parts for people and stuff like that because they couldn't come in the studio. Mm-hmm. So I, I could just do the take, show them it happened and say, what do you think of that? They say it's great. We chop it up, we send it over. It's great. Easy. Love it. Oh, I love that. Sorry, I'm, I'm fixated on this on this listen to thing for a minute. So you could also be in another DA, like you could be in two different DAWs, right? For sure. That's oh. that's probably the one of the main uses of it. Actually, you've just hit on something. It's like a bridge. Mm. Yeah, that's phenomenal, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, in audience, they're not sponsoring the show, but I will put a link in the show notes if. If you're not aware of the Audio Movers thing, which I believe Virgin now controls part of it, they had some involvement, I guess. But anyhow. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app. 
And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Well, let's move on. So you created your own studio and that is called What Studio, correct? Correct. Tell me about your decision-making leading up to that decision and how did you do it? Where did you do it? Tell me all the particulars about the studio. The one thing I really realize is that it's, it's really hard, isn't it? Running a studio. Oh, shit, yeah, it is. Like, it's really hard. And I have to say that, like, that common thread of ignorance is bliss really, really, really helps if you wanted to open a studio. <laughs> because had I have planned this, which I didn't, I just wouldn't have done it. Hmm. Because if I'd have thought of all of the aspects, I probably wouldn't have done that. That being said, I'd always owned stuff. I'd always had some kind of rig my rig became kind of like portable, ADATs, Motus, things like that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I was turning up to people's spaces and doing okay recordings. And I've had a bunch of buildings as well, access to things. I've had spaces before, but never like my thing. It was always shared with something and, you know, that's difficult when you're doing, trying to do recordings. But I would still never have done it because I've always been a little bit like open source, a bit DIY. It's like you can do it anywhere as if you need a studio was my kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm a product of this home recording. You know, I don't need to do a studio. I, I hate the things, the stale, and I don't like using reverb and shit like that, whatever. I had all these kind of like things in my head. And then about 2010, I brought my mobile rig to a church in Liverpool. My band were rehearsing there, and it was an upstairs space in this kind of attic of a church, which was cool, is cool. And I got my mobile stuff out and did a drum recording and took them home. And straight off the time, I was like, whoa, those drums sound immense. I mean, they really sound good. And about a week later, I had a, a recording of a friend's band and I did that. And that went really well. It's a band called X Easter Island Head. And it was a project of a friend of mine. And he started playing, um, it's like guitars rested on like keyboard stands and they played them with mallets in unusual tunings. Is, is the simple way to describe it. But it's, it's about getting these kind of extended techniques out of the guitar. And it was really super interesting. And he just got it to this fantastic place. And I was like, oh, let's, he'd asked me to record. I was like, of course, I'd love to do that. So we did, and it was in a nice big room and it suited the room, the ambience of the space. So anyway, I, I'm kind of at home mixing these things and I'm enamored with them just going, it's all about the room. And I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely <laughs> like, I'm convinced. I'm like, yeah, it's the room. I knew it, it's the room. It's absolutely the room. And then like about a week later or something other, we get asked, we've got to move out of this space is where we rehearse. I was gutted. I was like, oh no, that's rubbish. So anyway, 
leave there, 10 years pass, and then that's where I am now. I've come back to it because of another, which a very long series of conversations. But basically, it became available. I kind of chased it up. I had to put on a face of being professional, so I, I became a professional with a proposal to them. They accepted. They made me be official, public liability, blah, 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 blah. Next thing you know, my business, like, because I had to be. And I was like, oh, I suppose I just opened the door. So it was such a strange, natural thing of ending up back in this same space. And would you believe that that, like, first record that I'd made there for that band, you know, that went on to be, like, it was, like, best old rock record for Pitchfork or something. It got, it got good reviews and like set me off on things and wow. made me realize that you that you can do things of this nature with this equipment i mean another breakthrough i have to say this is one of my early rigs we've jumped quite a few rigs there i was a large proponent of acid 4.0 for years i couldn't get enough <laughs> of it that and sonic foundry combo was like yeah at one point it was like this is it does everything it, it sounds bizarre <laughs> it's great and, and, you know, the, it, the silly loop thing on it as well. So I was obviously right into that. And I'd made a record. This was 2008. And we'd made a record of my act called Black and White Mass. And I had a Behringer C1 condenser, 25 pounds, a Line 6 UX1, 69.99, internal software modeling, terrible business, tone port thing, and a trial version of, of Acid 4.0. And we made the record, it sounded great, and it got Radio 1 Album of the Week by Hugh Stevens. So I was like, oh shit, okay. So I was convinced really early on that you don't need gear. I was really convinced. You just need to, like, especially once the computers were involved, it was like, oh, that's it, we can all do it now, this is great. As long as you sit there for hours. <laughs> yeah. so if, you, if, you put the t if you put the time in, it can end up being the way you want it. Or have skills, one of the two, one of the two. So that, that, was, that was a big... Yeah, yeah, I think I think I can do that. So with the studio, hence the name, it's like I'm 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 a very working class gentleman from a sunny fishing village called Bootle. I'm definitely not going to end up with an SSL eight thousand somehow, and I'm not going to get it in that room either. It'd never get up the stairs. So I thought I'll just base it like this. I'll get the cleanest, bestest signal path I can get. I'll get a couple of tasteful preamps. I'll treat it lightly. And we'll keep the room the way it is because the room sounds great. I did do a few more treatments and it was already destroying the room. So I took it all back down because I mm. wanted the, the size of it. So I keep it as the facility is that's, that's where I record and I mix here, if you like. So this is like Studio B and never the twain shall, shall meet. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got, you've got two rooms there then. You've got a tracking room and a mixing room. Yeah, it seems to be the way I like to work. So this is my mixing room and this is at home. So I finish my day thing. I come home, I have my tea and then I start mixing here and then I'll I'll mix till late, very late, generally. And it's good because it puts me in a different frame of mind. It puts me in a different mindset. It changes my ears and you turn up to work in different ways. It's good. It's good to do. Just so I'm I'm clear here, this is in a church. It's in a church, yeah. I'm in the apex attic of a church if you look on the website which is whatstudio.info there's probably enough imagery just there now so consequently you know i have got room sound spring reverb and church and they are real which is nice wow okay cool so there's there's the track okay i see the the tracking room and then you've got the mixing room the and the two are in the same building and is that right no, the mixing room is at my is at my home. Oh, this is I'm home. sorry, I misunderstood. Yeah, yeah. So this say, this gives me this like um, leaving work thing twice, which is great. 
and also I really do benefit I think from going away from it and then coming to a different space to mix it's really helpful yeah yeah I like that and the hours are your own you can mix till I love working till very very late and I don't know about you but if you have a hung round in a church very late it gets quite spooky after dark yeah now do church services continue downstairs it's a fully functioning church is classed as inclusive and progressive and they certainly must be to allow me to be up there and yes it is functioning we have a shared calendar and it seems to work out being there four years now and it doesn't seem to have got in the way at much of an occasion i obviously can't do some things sometimes but that's fine and it just dictates my week to me some way so i just i just treat that as telling me to do something else at the time when they're doing things that's interesting tell me about the economics of liverpool in terms of if you're an audio person and you want to set up a studio renting a building is that is that challenging and is property expensive i would say no that doesn't mean all come here and do it though okay <laughs> we're gonna all migrate honest to giddy aunt it's pretty much if you were wanting to you could and there is buildings and they're probably cheaper than other places. It's a very strange climate, Liverpool, when you come, you, you'll grasp it as well, because it's it's hardly a city. It's so small, like the actual, specifically the inner city. People always refer to it as a village, because it's just, you can actually stroll up and down it in like an hour and a half. You saw it, I mean, it, yeah. it's that. And then after that, you're into, you're into like the suburbans, but like, there's plenty of buildings, yeah. And there's so much music. There's so much music. That's why it's nice, as I say, imagine not planning to open a studio, opening a studio and then being able to run it. Like, how do the clients come for Like, But I can do that in this city. It's And I, ha I don't advertise. I don't need to, you know, it's all based on my previous work or whatever. So it, that just shows how much music is, is, is in the area, really. And that's great. I love it. Talk to me about the economics of the studio. Is that worked out for you? Do you feel like you're making a, a decent living? So far, so good. As I mentioned before, I was doing other work. And I stopped doing that like two years ago. So I've been just me for two solid years now. Seems fine. Safari so goody, they say. Yeah. And bands just, do they contact you via the website or do a lot of people have your phone number, I guess? It seems to be that if I do something, something else happens. It's as simple as that. I have an Instagram page that seems to be quite popular. I don't know. Maybe it's that. It can't because of that. That doesn't make any sense. I think it's, I've done it for a while as well. I have recorded things for a very, very, very long time. I only opened a studio four years ago. So I think I was doing a lot of solutions for people. I've always been helping someone with something to do with recording for a very long time. So I imagine that's been beneficial, maybe. It must be something to do with that. Okay. Can't because I'm a nice guy. Can't be that. <laughs> In Liverpool, when it comes to buying pro audio gear, do you buy from an online dealer who's not in Liverpool or is there like a local hub of where you would go? Like what's the scene around pro audio retail? Hmm. I used to work in music retail. I did a bunch of years in that. So I've got a light understanding of it. And I also then worked in like the marketing department for a couple of years as well. So I've got a bunch of that as well. There's not much going on, I have to say. I recently visited um, Studio G over in Brooklyn with Joel Hamilton, and I was yeah. there for like three weeks, and I was like in the middle of a hub. I sensed it. I was in a hub. Yeah. 
but I don't really get that so much in Liverpool. There's lots of gear floating around in America. There's just stuff everywhere, really nice things, big old things with valves in. There's not so much in, in, in England. And if it is, it's all in America. You're I know, because we came over and poached it. Yeah, too, right? So, like, anything that's worth the, you know, anything that's got Oxford written on it, you've got anyway, so... Um, <laughs> um, so we've got what studio care and there's the usual normal places now I don't know I'm not really part of that scene sadly I wish I was no so when you go buy gear where do you go oh it's usually from the usual places really like so it's through Germany isn't it these days okay That's it. it's generally from Germany or studio care that's the Liverpool shout out they're great they do some good things yeah they do what you need really and is there any uh Obviously, we would say rent in America, but are there any higher places there that you could like hire out fancy mics or any particular pieces of gear? Plenty of things, yeah. There's again, it's them or um, Adlib Audio or Liverpool PA. He's -hmm. a good one. He's got some bits and bobs, but I don't do any of that. Okay. Do you do that? No, not not usually. I'll either borrow it, and if I borrow it, then especially if I borrow it from a manufacturer directly, then. Oh, yeah, we'll send that out. You can check it out. And then it's like a drug deal. It's like, oh. Yeah, I've been hit with a couple of them. And I learned quite quickly. Yeah, it's a thing where, you know, you borrow it or it's just like plugins, you know. Download the demo and then you're like, oh, I can't live without this. I got to have this. Mm. So I don't borrow or, or hire in things because it's probably against some of my like DIYness. I'd rather just seek it out secondhand, purchase it at a good price and then just have it. I'm kind of like, uh, what is it, like a VIP user for like Sonatronics, you know, the British microphone people. So I've, I've got a couple of pieces from them and I'm a, I'm a boss rolling person as well. So I get a couple of things from them now and again. But like, that's probably about it, really. Mm. Oh, ooh, Analog Addicts. Do you know them? No. I recommend them. So I, shout out to Analog Addicts. Red 47 is the type of like preamp I purchased from them. And it's a recondition from the old like Ferrograph type hosts. And then they just doing nice big fat transformers inside and making it right. Have a look at them, Analog Addicts. Hmm. Beautiful pieces, really very, very reasonably priced. Excellent. Let's talk about the unfun thing. So tell me financially, are you a saver? Are you a spender? You mentioned you have a very DIY kind of ethic. So I assume that you're not racing out to buy the latest, greatest piece of gear and, and spend all your money. So am I safe to assume that you're a saver? I am not a saver because I am very poor. I'm at that point where I just basically am investing in the studio currently. So everything I'm getting is getting new things. Every time I upgrade, there's always, if you've got a penchant or a fetish for equipment, opening a studio is like, what have you done to yourself? Yeah. What have you done? Like, I'm so interested in like Velcro or hooks or anything, any product at all now I'm obsessed with, you know, to try and figure out the, the cheapest, bestest route to it. So currently everything's going into the studio. It'll have to. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> that's that's risky, right? Oh, I, I've i grown more financially conservative over time. So yeah, I tend to, my buying habits have changed dramatically since starting the podcast. That's for sure. Hmm. It's a direct result of talking to so many people and going, hmm, I don't know if I'm going to do that anymore kind of a hmm. thing. But to each his own, you know? I've hit this unusual paradigm where I try to be, and I quote myself from several minutes ago, I've tried to be as like frugal and DIY as I can. And then I've opened a studio where 
the client doesn't want frugal and DIY. They want shiny things. They want flashy lights and shiny things. So I've got to temper something in between of that. I know I need to hit some standards, and I know that if I pick the right, correct pieces of gear that shine and the right person with the right mind who might be quizzing some of this, if they see the right piece of gear, they'll at least be confirmed that I know what I'm on about. Yeah. Because like, even if they don't plug it in, which is usually the case, right? So like, it, you just have to have the right things that people go, ah, he knows. <laughs> he knows about that. Because I, I, the whole process is trust, isn't it? The recording thing. So equipment offers trust. It's another layer of where somebody goes, I'm not going to have a terrible day if we go there. They have X, Y, Z. Yeah. And he must know about Z because he's got, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, I always ask about work-life balance. Like, is there a significant other? Is there family? Do you feel like you're always working? And do you have trouble, like, keeping everybody happy, like, with the recording side as well as the family side? Music 24-7 just it's there just it that yeah i have a significant other and she also is music 24 7 so luckily we kind of hit each other at the dinner times and and snooze times and that works so far i'll report back to you on it obviously yeah. shout out <laughs> that's great so audience i am going to of course include appropriate links in the show notes what studio.info please go check it out and uh have a look Stephen, really great to talk to you. I'm so glad you reached out because I've enjoyed our conversation immensely and I look forward to a time when we can meet in person and I can actually come to Liverpool and see your studio. You should literally come to Liverpool and see my studio. I'm going sure, to go get on a plane right now. See you in nine hours. Yeah, yeah, it'll be a little longer than that, but you know. Okay. Fantastic. Well, thanks again. I appreciate that, that you made time for me too. Thanks, Matt. Great chatting. All right, take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Stephen Cole here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. want to, of course, remind you to head on over to your podcast aggregator and leave a five-star review if you do like the show. If you don't like the show, just don't say anything. But I think, I think if you've made it this far, you probably do like the show, and that would be appreciated. But that's all for me today. I want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magic voice of Chuck Smith at the top of the show. Always feel free to email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com, and connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, 
including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> 